Welcome, everyone, to episode number 15 now. I can't believe we're uh, so far ahead, I would say. But uh, today we've got Preston Hadley. So Preston was on a previous episode with Mm -hmm. us and we promised for him to come back for a number of reasons. We do want to continue the discussions we've had, but he also has a very important announcement. We kind of teased it in the previous episode, but we mentioned the Change Alive giveaway. But I'll let Preston expand a little bit more on that, uh, what that is exactly and what uh, he's doing this time. And we also wanted to, you know, talk to Preston a little bit about his business again, because I think it's very interesting to document his journey. Uh, we're going to be taking any Q&A again from the viewers. And without any further delay, Preston, do you want to uh, reintroduce yourself a little bit? Tell us about uh, what it is that you do and talk to us about the Change Alive giveaway. Yeah. So again, my name is Preston Hadley. I'm the owner and president of Envision Automation and Controls. We are an automation and control system integrator, and uh, we work uh, pretty much nationally. We build panels in-house. We do electrical design and programming uh, and just about everything else under that controls umbrella. Um, the Change Alive giveaway is something I started last year. Um, the process started last year and implemented in the first of the year. And uh, it's uh, to give somebody an opportunity to get their hands on some hardware slash software, uh, give them kind of a leg up and, and uh, you know, more so get them in, kind of involved and integrated in real world applications of uh, controls and, and PLC programming, et cetera. Uh, the current giveaway is actually a Festo um, a servo kit. It's the CMMT developer kit. Uh, it's a great low-cost solution that integrates over EIP to, uh, you know, an Allen Bradley processor. Uh, this would give anybody a good opportunity to get their hands on motion control at a very small and, and simple level to get their mind wrapped around it. Uh, again, this is great for anybody, not, not just uh, college educated, but this would be good for anyone who's trying to get into it from an electrical background um, or even a programming background um, or both. It really doesn't much matter. Um, you know, our last winner, he was uh, so fortunate and he was winning, or sorry, he was uh, going to school and learning to be an engineer and it worked out perfectly. So I'm hoping that uh, yet again, we can find someone who's in the process of finding their path and their career into the industry and hopefully we can give them a leg up. Awesome. No, that's, uh, it's, I think really great to be able to uh, give back to the community. And as you said, I think, you know, the barrier to entry can sometimes seem extremely high just because of the cost of, you know, some of these components, both on the hardware and the software side. So being able to partner up with a distributor that's able to provide such hardware for us to give away, I think is, uh, it's really great. Absolutely. Dave, um, what are your thoughts? What are your... Yeah, no, no, I think it's amazing. So we had talked a little bit about this briefly on the earlier episode that Preston was on and how well it had gone over and how the person was able to utilize this to, to better understand what's going on in automation. And kind of based upon the whole kind of change life giveaway scenario, he then found a, he found a job uh, within industry um, because of kind of everything that it has gone together with this. And I think it's an amazing opportunity, uh, especially for someone looking to get into industry. They don't necessarily have, you know, 300 bucks or $1,500 to go through the process of purchasing all of this themselves. And so going into the first job interview, it becomes difficult to, you know, tell me what you've done with an industry. And it's like, man, I've never touched a controller. I've never touched a servo or a motion drive. And this gives them the opportunity to get some hands-on experience. So I think it's a fantastic thing um, that you have very much um, uh, piloted uh, within this Preston. Kind of from the moment you mentioned it, I'm like, this is a fantastic idea. I'm uh, I, I'm surprised that Preston is the first person who's come up with it or it took until 2020 or 2021 to, to come and do this. But listening to Preston's story about how he had a great opportunity, um, I, I think that that's absolutely fantastic. And I think that this is this is a great opportunity for someone. Um, I, I will make the the kind of ask early for anyone who is who is listening and watching that, you know, the goal, is, as Preston has described in the past, is to get someone who doesn't have experience and to get their, the 
hardware in their hands. And so uh, as you know, many people who are watching this have five or 10 or 20 years of experience and can expense much of this or, or can, uh, you know, write it off. or it doesn't necessarily matter. I think the goal of this is to make sure that we can get it out into the hands of someone who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to, to have the hardware and to get the hands-on experience. Yep, absolutely. Preston, in um, other items, I do want to ask you, what have you been up to since our previous conversation? I know that you're always on the road, very busy. We see a few glimpses of what you're doing every now and then on LinkedIn. But are there any maybe noteworthy things that you can or are allowed to share? Maybe a few. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we've, we've up quite a bit of what we're doing in our panel shop at this current point in time. Um, and we've done a few modifications to our panel shop to streamline that. Uh, as you can see behind me, I have a mobile panel shop workstation. Um, so we're trying to go all digital. Um, that's something that's a, a big initiative of mine to uh, limit how much uh, paper and ink and kind of those kinds of consumables are used. Uh, I'm not a big fan of it. And I'm not a big fan of prints getting mixed up on the floor. So that's one thing we've implemented recently. It's been really successful. Um, there's been some pretty awesome projects that we've been uh, a part of and taking a, taking a look, look at being a part of. Uh, and some of them are pretty large. I'll describe one to start with. Uh, it's a steel line. Uh, and what it does is it takes uh, steel coils and it slits them and recoils them. Um, there, it, it's a pretty old machine. I think it's 30 something years old. And uh, the intention is to retrofit that machine. Um, so there would be a, a series of panels built here on site uh, at Envision HQ, um, we're doing an, a complete electrical design package. We're doing the programming for it. And we are working with uh, some electricians uh, to get that installed on site. Some of that includes, you know, 150, 200 horsepower uh, VFDs uh, driving some pretty big motors uh, and some pretty cool stuff. What's the, the previous platform, if you don't mind me asking, what were they utilizing in that machine? Is that a relay or like purely electrical based system or was there a control? No, it's uh, so if I'm not mistaken, Vlad, you may correct me. Did Schneider buy Modicon? I think they did. I think um, so. Because the system that's installed yes. there is it's a it's a Schneider Modicon system, um, and it's all 120 volt stuff. the The customer is requesting a retrofit because the controls are just outdated. You know, I mean, they're 20 plus years. They can't hardly. In fact, I don't think they can gain access to the HMI or PLC. So they're kind of uh, you know, running production on a hope and a prayer. So uh, that particular installation is just outdated. And what are you going to be utilizing if you can share with us that you choose yeah. a platform of choice? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, it's going to be uh, Schneider, uh, Altivar, VFDs, and it's going to be some Rockwell uh, controls, uh, PLC, HMI. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Oh, yeah. So they've got a couple of... Um, remote stations around uh, the machine uh, for, you know, the, the coiler, the recoiler, um, uh, for the scrap uh, motors as well. And so those, those remote stations, they, they were utilizing um, Modbus uh, remote IO. Mm -hmm. And so we're simply going to rip that out and uh, put in some, for example, point IO over ethernet IP. And yeah. uh, a lot of that gets to stay where it is while some of it gets, you know, freshened up a little bit. Some buttons are going to be replaced, but mostly just the core uh, controls of the system is going to be replaced. We will have two large new panels with the very large Altivar drives, um, which are really cool if you haven't looked into them. They're actually pretty neat, um, but it should be very interesting. So that's a job we're, we're, we're looking at and that we're, we're, we're uh, quoting. I'm curious on the like technical side, how come you decided to go with the Schneider uh, drives instead of let's say like a PowerFlex line? Is there an advantage to them? Uh, it was it was customer specific. Custom. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah, they're they, probably they, trying to standardize on the like on yes. that platform, and they have many of them across. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, they they can care less on PLC and HMI as long as it matches what they're used to on functionality. But when it comes to the drives, they really wanted to stick with that. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And that's so that on the back, the screen that we see uh, on your screen, that's your drawing that you're using to assemble the panel or somebody in the workshop is using to assemble the panel behind yes. you that, right? Okay. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'll go ahead and mention the software. I mean, anybody can find it. It's called Drawboard PDF. Um, it's free on Windows. Um, I know they have a paid version, but what you're able to do is you're able to open a PDF and mark it up with, for example, what I have behind me, we're marking it up with, you know, yellow and red highlighters. And you're able to leave notes and stuff as well. So the panel uh, builder, uh, he'll mark that up as he wires each wire to each terminal in the panel. And if he has a question or a discrepancy with the design, he'll leave a note in the general area of, let's say, a set of contacts or a coil or a solenoid symbol. He'll leave a note there and he'll type in whatever his discrepancy is and we'll get that updated. Um, it's, it's quite handy uh, for, again, just kind of eliminating paper, eliminating multiple sets of drawings, because I found that keeping a master set is sometimes very difficult when you have many different hands on the same mm -hmm. project. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, and we don't have that many panel shop guys to have that problem yet, but I'd rather nip it in the butt now. And also, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, it's uh, it's on a roll around cart. Um, it has a battery backup UPS, so we can unplug it from the wall and move it around and plug it to different stations so that we don't have a power interruption. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really handy. It also can doubles as a, uh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to ask, uh, can you, like, let's say as a customer for whom you're drawing this or like building the panel, can they see in real time also like what, you know, your people are marking up as, let's say, like questions or maybe like errors in the design phase or, um, you know, just like taking notes? Can the customer see that too? Uh, so, yeah, if we share the document to the customer and they have drawboard PDF, yes, they can. They can view the updates. That's really cool. Yeah, because that, yeah. that I feel... I guess like in my opinion would simplify some of the processes, you know, that I've had in the past where you get an email with a screenshot and like, here's the, here's, or here's the PDF and there, here's the markups. And then you have to yes. kind of sit in the meeting and figure out what's going on versus if you can see already, then you can maybe be better prepared. And no, that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. And um, so yeah, no, I, I guess those of those who are watching who are maybe not familiar with the process, it's very common to have red lines and yellow lines in the drawings, right? So during the design phase, you have checks, you have questions from those who are assembling the panel, but also once you go and install the panel in the field, a lot of times either you do it with the customer or the customer does it, but they will check, you know, that the connections are correct and yellow line or red line, all of the, uh, of the wirings to make sure that everything is uh, up to spec and makes sense. And I guess like I can tie in like a very short story of my own where uh, so this, this was at my first employer uh, when we did an FAT. So factor acceptance test first at the vendor who had put together a panel, we checked all the, all the, all the wiring, everything was correct. And they used their own supply of uh, three phase power coming into that specific module. So think of it uh, it's, it wasn't controls from like a PLC standpoint. It was mostly drives, uh, VFDs, and servo motors. The PLC was in a, in a different panel. But so when we brought it to the site, uh, the electricians installed it and they yellow line and red lined everything. So everything was correct. Uh, the mistake that we did on the engineering side, which is, I guess, like I, I took the blame and responsibility for that is we didn't check continuity on the neutral. So this was a star connection um, and so as you can imagine if you have a floating neutral at the module you start getting very high voltages on your single phase uh, drives or even like double phase and so long story short we blew up I think it was uh, like 60k worth of equipment in like a single panel and um, like that's I guess like one of the important um, learning lessons, I guess, when you have drawings, you can like trace back to what the issue was, but you also double check that all of your wiring is correct, right? Like, so that specific issue was, uh, I guess, a fault of not measuring continuity and resistance. But uh, in general, you can avoid a lot of the damage that could potentially occur once you power up your equipment by doing those checks initially. And of course, as we were discussing at the very beginning, uh, if you have very good drawings, then it becomes very simple to troubleshoot. I wouldn't say very simple, but it becomes a lot more pleasant to troubleshoot and work on that panel. Sure, sure. No, you're right. And, you know, uh, the gentleman that built the panel behind me, he utilized uh, yellow lines to determine which wires he had put in the panel. And he determined 
uh, continuity by putting a red stripe through that wire on the drawing. Mm -hmm. um, something else that we're going to roll out and give a try is, um, you know, well, okay, we have this here in the shop and that's fine and dandy, but how are we going to do this in the field if we have an electrical contractor or ourselves uh, and we want to make a change? Um, so we're going to deploy this to tablets as well so that when we're in mm -hmm. the field and these installations are done, we can do markup. It's not quite a, you know, a 46 inch screen, but it's something to where we can mark it up in one spot and it not be forgotten in the bottom of a panel. That happens a lot of the time. You find, um, you know, independent sheets of a drawing set with red marks and you go, well, which set is this from? Has this been, um, you know, amended yet to the, to the master set? What's going on? So that's something we're going to try to roll out soon. I think that will be quite helpful. And, you know, I had one gentleman on my, or my, sorry, my LinkedIn post. And he said, uh, he said, that's uh, trade secrets when I posted this thing. But the uh, truth is, I think it's, you know, something anybody can build and it could be super helpful to a lot of the guys on my, um, you know, my LinkedIn feed. No, absolutely. Sure. I completely agree with you. I think um, if I may mention this as well, one of the things that I would always look out for during an interview at a, like at a site was the, the state of the panels, right? Because I think you can very easily tell the state of affairs, so to speak, by what you see in a in an automation panel and like what i mean by that is not just including a set of drawings but also like the state of the panel itself right like do you have like just random wires sticking out do you have wire nuts sticking out do you have unterminated like connections do you have um you know wires dangling on the on the bottom of the panel do you have water on the panel like I, i've seen that right like two inches of water um and there's like a hole that usually is drilled in so that the water can be drained from an electrical panel but uh, I mean, those are all kinds of safety violations. But that, just that aside, I think it's very good practice to have a very nice uh, and by nice, I mean like clean and workable panel. And that tells me a lot by how you run your operations in general. And again, just my opinion, but something that I indirectly look at and want to see when I have been to interviews. No, so, you're correct. Once it leaves a, a shop like mine and it's put on site, it's, uh, it's their baby to take care of after that. And um, too many times I think I've walked in and seen the Panduit covers thrown to the wind. Uh, like you said, loose terminations and sometimes things in the panel that you, why, why, <laughs> why is it there? <laughs> so, yeah. No, absolutely. So Preston, I was going to say, um, it seems like the panel shop especially has grown almost exponentially since I think it was probably mainly you the uh, the first time we talked how many how many folks do you currently have working for you uh, in some capacity in the panel shop and do you plan to continue to scale that like do you have a goal in mind as to how many people uh, you would have working on panels yeah so right now we actually have only one part-time contractor working in the panel shop he keeps up pretty dramatically actually um, but yeah, we plan to get that to a consistent level. We don't exactly, um, and I may have mentioned this before, I'm not necessarily interested in bidding against other full-time panel shops where that's mm -hmm. all they do and they've got uh, volume pricing on a lot of different things and they're also doing just a ton of panels. Um, we'll do what we can for our customers at a very competitive price and, and that's basically where we're going to handle it for now. Uh, we're not interested in being a, a uh, all-known panel shop. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, for new customers and existing customers, this is really just to be able to build projects in-house for them and deliver kind of a, um, uh, you know, kind of an all-in-one all kind of service for them from electrical engineering to panel fabrication, programming, installation, and commissioning. Yeah, no, I like that. Sense. I think you had mentioned in the previous show that your goal was for all of this to be value-add so that your customers had one stop to uh, to go and do, and yes. you didn't necessarily envision uh to uh to, to build a panel shop and compete against the other panel shops who probably do it in much higher volume and for much fewer dollars at you know ten thousand panels a month than uh than you can that's correct we have a question um in the chat and i guess i could probably answer it as well so gabriel 
Russell asked, how is it possible that we do a software raffle giveaway so that those of us from another country can participate? And I think uh, that's a that's an interesting point. I think, um, you know, for now, the giveaways have been kind of closed off to uh, North America, I believe, or the U.S., Preston, on your side, just because logistically it becomes like difficult to start shipping. And usually these components also carry a, I guess it's a it's a manufacturing equipment um, like it, re- it requires a different, I guess, tax bracket to import that into different countries. But the point is, I think it would be interesting to do uh, those kinds of giveaways. I think uh, there's some interesting licenses that uh, I think Tim Wilborn posted recently for Alan Bradley, like a fairly inexpensive license. And Siemens also has some cool starter kits. I don't know if they sell, um, you know, just the license that you can download, but they do send you DVDs, which, uh, which I've received personally. So I think something definitely to, uh, to consider as well, right? Because I think uh, folks in other countries might be even more, um, I guess, difficult to come by some of this hardware and software. No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, yes, this current giveaway is based in the USA currently. Um, future giveaways, we are going to try to expand, especially towards Canada as well. I have a lot of people in my network that reside in Canada who uh, would absolutely benefit uh, just the same as anybody else. So, yeah, we're going to try to move it that way. Of course, there's some logistics that come along with that. Um, so, and of course, uh, the companies that we work with on these giveaways as well. Mm-hmm. Preston, the robot that you had behind you last time, I guess, has probably found a new home by this time. Are you able to talk to us about that experience? How is, uh, I guess I'm, again, I have very limited FANUC programming experience, but I've worked on several projects where I had to essentially interface the PLC to the robot. And then there was a dedicated resource that would program, you know, the sequences. But I'm curious, um, I'm assuming that you do that all in-house and like deploy that either, is it a palletizing operation or is it something different? Uh, so that robot, we um, were storing it for a customer and did not know what the scope was going to be at that particular time. Turns out that we didn't actually have to deal with any of the FANUC work. Uh, the panel behind me is actually for that particular job. Uh, so we went ahead, we did do the electrical drawings for them. We did do the panel for them. And uh, we're going to do some electrical markup at the end of the project. Awesome. Pretty yep. cool. Yep. Yeah, it's... Preston. Uh, it, Go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. You you, you go ahead, Vlad. I, I had a question about something else in the uh, in the background last time. So, but you 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 finish your thought, Vlad, and then I will ask my question. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Okay, Preston. So I have the the question, the, the burning question that we should not have waited so long to uh, to get into. How has the how has the boat rebuild been going? Because you you had a big boat that I think you had just recently picked up the last time we talked to you. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you asked that. Um, that's probably my, my greatest hobby as of yet. Um, at least as, a, uh, in my late twenties, that's a really great hobby. Um, so yeah, it's actually running. We've been going out on the river for the last couple of weekends and a few things have broken. Uh, you know, I think we were out a few weeks ago and the, the brand new water pump that I put in it had burned up. So I had to replace that again. Um, there was some missing gaskets on the water pump base. And if anybody knows anything about boats, you could understand how easy that would be to miss. Um, so we, we fixed that. We went out and had some more fun. And um, I think right now it's, it's actually kind of funny on the dash of a boat, you usually have a water pressure gauge. And that water pressure gauge has a tube coming from the water pump on the engine to give you a physical pressure. The hose popped off when we were doing maybe 50 miles per hour and sprayed the inside of the dash <laughs> and cooked the stereo and a few other things. And um, I, I think the uh, recent owner, they had it pulled too tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, we, we took that and we zip tied it to the outside of the boat uh, so it could just spray water outside the boat. And we continued on with our day and had a good time on the water. Turns out um, your water cooling system on a boat should be closed loop. And by doing that, I had a pressure leak, so to speak, and it causes the temperature of the engine to rise a little more dramatically because a closed loop system requires that pressure to open a poppet valve to require or to to provide more flow. So basically, we just have to go fast for a little while and then slow down and then a little while and then slow down. 
but we had a lot of fun and didn't do any damage to the engine. So we're reassembling up that this Friday and we should be back out there on Saturday to have some more fun on the river. So, yeah, I'm glad you asked. No, no, I like this. So anyone listening, if you are in Preston's area and need like a couple of dozen panels made, Preston needs more money for boat parts. <laughs> That's no joke, man. Whew. No, I, 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 thousand. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I've certainly heard boats are, uh, boats are expensive hobbies to, uh, to get in. Yes. Yep. And it doesn't matter the age. In fact, I think the older, the more expensive almost. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The older, almost certainly the more expensive they get. <laughs> yeah. It's something I've thought about myself, but I think, uh, you know, with the weather in Canada, it becomes a little bit difficult because I think we only get like three months out of the year to, um, I guess, bike or, or, or boat or whatever. So it's, uh, I don't know, what's, uh, Preston, what's the weather in your area? Like, are you able to enjoy it for at least five, six months out of the year? You know, I, it, this is my first season, but usually I would say some of my buddies who have boats, they get a few months out of the year. I mean, we, you know, it starts, uh, so we, so we start to warm up right around now. So like Memorial day is when everyone starts to break out the boats on the river and the lakes in this area. And then everyone starts to put them away, uh, you know, October, September kind of area when we roll into fall. So there's, there's a fair amount of time. Um, but it just depends on whether you want to wear a jacket or not while you're on the water. Yeah. So. And the work that you did on the boat, is that all on your own or do, uh, what's a, like, what's the procedure? Can you bring this to a mechanic and they'll, you know, figure it out for you? What's the. Oh yeah. There's definitely some boat shops. I did it all myself on this one. Um, I tore the, what they call the lower unit, which is where you have the prop and the gearbox and all of that, uh, to get to the water pump. I've tore that off four times now. <laughs> and, um, I've tore off uh, the water jacket cooling heads off top of the heads. And yeah, I've done it all in house though. It's a, it's been a pretty awesome learning experience and it's, it's not nearly as difficult as working on a car engine. Um, usually a car engine, you're bent over a car, uh, your back is aching and you're trying to fix something, but with a, with a boat engine, it's on an outboard. It's just kind of there. You just stand there and work on it. It's real nice. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, you know, PLC and programming work during the day and then boat fixing and working on mechanical parts, I guess, at night. That's I'm, I'm excited to see Envision Marina coming 2023. Oh <laughs> you know, it's funny, Dave, you mentioned that because the, uh, the Evansville Marina, it, it was up for sale or up for auction a few weeks or a month yeah. or so ago. And um, uh, obviously I'm not buying it, but man, oh my gosh, that would be awesome. Um, they've got a, over there by the Marina, they've got uh, the Tiki Lounge, which is like a floating mm -hmm. kind of restaurant bar. Yep. Uh, next to that, they have another um, restaurant right on the river. So yeah, it's, that would be awesome, Dave. But I, I just. <laughs> I, I think marinas are a lot like boats. I think they're just very expensive. I would imagine yeah. that that is, that is probably the fifth or sixth marina that I've heard that has gone up to auction in the last year. And I would imagine that there's a reason why marinas are going up for auction. Sure. That's right. Why do you think that is? I guess I, I'm not familiar with that. But, because I, I, I'm not sure that there is a lot of money. I, I think that there is a lot of cash flow in marinas. I, I think that it could be very difficult to make money or to make, you know, a multi-million dollar investment back unless you have another five to $10 million that you're willing to put into the Marina so you can make more money out of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Marinas, as you know, they have individual slips that rent mm -hmm. out for so much per month. And I think it's a lot harder. Again, I'm not an expert and I don't even have a slip, but I would imagine it would be more difficult to raise the, the price of a slip every year to kind of take care of rising inflation, material costs and upkeep um, than per se, you know, an apartment complex or uh, an industrial complex. There you could kind of raise that money as you, as you go to take care of that. I think with a marina it would be a, um, a maintenance nightmare, honestly, I'm not sure. I think part of the value of having a marina is the ability to have you know, you also have all of the services. And so if people are renting slips, they're also in theory, also using all of your other services. So the fuel and the maintenance and, and everything along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I'm very fortunate to, to be able to store this thing on land and we're not far from the river. So, um, you know, and even in the uh, winter months, just store it in a dry area and you're good. So, Speaking of um, real estate, if I want to 
if I can throw that in, um, we followed your journey on building your HQ. I'm curious if you had any maybe um, like after mentions or, you know, like learning points or like really like what are your thoughts on, you know, like looking back, would you do it again? Are you planning to expand some more? Like what are, what are the takeaways on that project? So it's funny, actually, um, I get a lot of people that kind of ask me that. And it's there's a slight misconception, actually. And this is probably due to my social media uh, posts. But this was built for us uh, as a lease. So there's actually a park that we're in. So all of our buildings are somewhat mm. similar. And uh, so when, uh, when I went about posting that, probably could have described that a little better. I think I put it in a few posts as a description. But um, no, it was, it was built fairly custom to what we wanted. Uh, most of these buildings are divvied up into two units. We uh, decided to um, knock down the middle wall or rather not put it there um, during construction and just took the entire building. Um, it's not the largest building in the world, but for us, it was a, a great start um, considering, and we mentioned this in the last podcast, uh, I worked out of my apartment to begin with. You know, uh, I think right now we have uh, 2,600 square feet uh, and a good 75, 80% of that is just pure shop space, uh, while the rest is office space. Uh, to me, that's a win. You know, it's a step up from an apartment. I don't care who you are. So, um, <laughs> no, yes, we do have plans to expand. Uh, we're here for the minimum of uh, another year and a half. Uh, we, we had a two-year minimum here. So I am planning on building a facility after that. Uh, and we're located in Chandler, Indiana, which is kind of right outside Evansville, which is a pretty big metropolitan area in the southern uh, southwestern area of Indiana. Um, so we do plan on kind of finding a, a better spot in Chandler to build uh, and, you know, go from maybe 2,600 to five or 10,000 square feet is the goal. Hmm. No, that's, that's awesome. I mean, like it, it's, it's a big project and I'm sure a big undertaking too, if you want to, um, I guess the, uh, the lease portion, like some kind of a company took care of, uh, you know, building everything and you just had to like select what you wanted, uh, within the facility. But now that you, uh, will have to manage that project, right. Like going forward, if you want yes. to build something of your own, so it becomes a little bit more complex, I would imagine. Yes. Well, you know, I have a bit of, uh, experience in that anyhow, you know, mm -hmm done quite a bit of remodels and construction before. Uh, in fact, uh, with my original mentor in PLC programming, one of his, um, I, I guess you could say it was a hobby, was buying and flipping real estate. Um, that's some hard work. Um, and it's great work though, but I worked with him on that as well. And so we would go into a lot of properties that were uh, dilapidated. We'd go in there, gut them, remodel them, finish them out and uh, flip them. So there's quite a bit of experience there. And really, truthfully, if you um, been in this industry for any amount of time where you've done some fabrication or wiring or uh, electrical schematics, it really just kind of helps you along the electrical side of things as well as, um, you know, I mean, it's just wood. <laughs> it's just wood and screws. I mean, it's, it's, it's doable is my point, I, I guess is what I mean to say. And um, yeah. I had some experience in the past when I was a younger uh, teenager, uh, did, did some construction projects then. So it definitely helped out for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Preston, I want to ask you, um, obviously you're extremely busy with your current customers, but do you have any like plans or maybe undertakings to learn, you know, like new hardware and new technologies that you want to offer your customers, whether it is, I don't know, machine vision, data, SCADA, like, I guess there's a lot of like new industry 4.0 technologies as well. Like any thoughts on that and what your maybe like outlook is in the future for uh, Envision? Yeah, absolutely, man. Like one of the most recent technologies that I've, you know, not had the pleasure of dealing with that I've had to learn is Kepware. Um, obviously not super complicated, very easy, really. Um, but uh, we did a demo for a customer where we set up a Micrologics controller over Ethernet IP. Uh, we had a Kepware server running on the laptop as a demo. And we also had Ignition running on there as well. Uh, so we were using Kepware to, to forward that um, uh, data to Ignition. Uh, ignition seems super powerful. I don't see why it wouldn't be a great solution for any small to medium sized SCADA solution. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one technology that I've most recently personally myself uh, reached out and learned and it's uh, pretty awesome stuff. Uh, second to that, we've picked up some recent work on some very high speed uh, barcode reading, uh, which I've not dealt with 
previously. Most of the applications mm -hmm. I've dealt with in vision or barcode reading are maybe a part every second or half second at the very least. Um, we ran into an application where they were reading barcodes every one millisecond. Um, the product that was going through the machine was a complete blur. I couldn't even see the product with my naked eye. Um, one millisecond per product. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, and That's very it, fast. Are there cameras yeah. that are even able to process at that speed? Well, I, I believe it was a Dataman 503. Um, okay. And it was, it was unbelievable. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. Now, thankfully, it's checking uh, for a variance. Like, it's checking the same barcode on the product that's going through. So every product has the same barcode. And it's looking for a mixture. If it sees a mixture, so if it sees a different barcode, it stops the machine and alerts uh, the operators that there's a mix because it's a food product. Um, so it was it, it was incredibly high speed, incredible application. Um, and, you know, we're going in there and, and looking at um, doing some upgrades for them, doing some maintenance for them on those on those cameras and readers. Wow, that's uh, that's really fast. Uh, I don't think I've seen any application work at that level. I, I remember with uh, some of the Cognex stuff that I had done, it wasn't uh, barcodes, it was, you know, image processing, but it would, it would take at least 30 milliseconds, you know, to obviously acquire and then process the image and then send something back to the, to the PLC. So mm -hmm. like plus the scan time, right? So you're looking at like 50 milliseconds at best. Yep. yep. Well, and this is, you know, this is what the readout said on, uh, I'm trying to remember what that Cognex readout is, uh, EMP or something of this nature. Um, but it was reading, I think they did one product run and it was tens of thousands of product within just a few minutes. It was ridiculous. Wow. It was very ridiculous. So, um, very cool stuff. Yeah. You know, and again, we're trying to do a little more electrical design as well. We had, a, have had a few customers just in the last 30 days, send us, um, a good portion of electrical uh, schematics and prints to either update the panel layouts on or update the electrical schematics on. And, uh, Sometimes they send um, just a PDF, in which case, you know, it's a little more difficult to work with just a PDF when I'm working inside of electrical, uh, AutoCAD electrical. Um, and sometimes I get the full um, uh, root folder of that project, including the database files and, and all the individual drawing packages. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's been quite interesting to go in there and, and learn uh, the different ways in which people draw, which is kind of wide and varied uh, to a very large degree. Uh, everyone does does it just a little bit differently, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's really no standard, or at least not no standard that I'm aware of, right? Like as to like what to kind of make the layout uh, of. Like obviously, like there's some common patterns, right? Like when you have motors, like it's very common to draw them in like a three phase with the uh, you know fuses, your overloads, all your like in line, but. I don't know. I don't know if there's a standard because I see depending again, like on where you're located and then depending on where the machine has been built, uh, if it's coming from Europe, it's going to be slightly, slightly different. Not only, I guess, the drawings, the symbols are slightly different and there are standards on on that front, but I don't think the layout, there's really a standard and I've seen all kinds of different things, but um, everyone has a their own preference, I guess. No, you're correct on that. Uh, you know, something about panel layouts that I noticed a lot lately um, is the mix of heavy three phase and low voltage wiring in the same wire way. I know that um, oftentimes there's, there's no way around it. Uh, for example, like PowerFlex uh, 525 VFDs, which are super awesome. You're going to have some low voltage wiring in that same wire way um, mm -hmm. for like your STO or whatever with your three phase. I understand that. Um, but you could you could um, run it the opposite way once it leaves the drive, you know, and try to separate those as much as possible. I know they make uh, some uh, wireway um, RF uh, separators, if I'm not mistaken, um, that can kind of shield your yeah, yeah. low voltage cabling. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that's also overlooked. I think that some guys uh, they get thrown into a you know position. Maybe they've never used AutoCAD electrical or even built a panel. And I think that some of that reflects through um, when you find a panel that has all of that running together. And I think that a panel is all about flow. I think that keep your three phase away from everything as much as possible and keep your low voltage isolated as well. Yeah. 
I mean, I see typically like 110 mixed with 24 volts, which typically isn't that much of an issue, but three phase, like, yeah, I mean, unless you really try, you're trying to save on like conduit and wire weight, then maybe sure. Like there's some low cost associated there, but typically it's, I I personally would not recommend doing it that way. No. Conduit is just so cheap though, compared to, the RF issues that you're going to have. I mean, if you just have to go through and troubleshoot what turns into be an RF issue, you're a day, you know, you're realistically a day in there unless someone realizes that you did something screw with the wires and pulls them apart to begin with, but it becomes just exceptionally expensive. And that's almost the, the penny wise pound foolish. I'm going to try to save $4 in conduit, but I'm going to cost myself a week of downtime and, you know, bringing in a whole bunch of professionals to try to figure it out. Right. No, I agree. That's correct. So I actually have a funny capware story for you, Preston. So uh, similar to the application that you were describing, uh, like, Capware into ignition. I had a, a customer or a potential customer. This was probably three or four years ago. Uh, give me a call and they were very interested. They had a bunch of like old compact logics or old controls logics and they were, maybe they were PLC fives and they were in the process of upgrading them. And they knew that they wanted to upgrade this, that they had to upgrade it, that they had to upgrade it with the redundancy because of their lines and that they were pretty sure they were going to go into ignition. Their only question was Kepware. And Kepware, for anyone who isn't familiar, is, is a middleware. It's exceptionally straightforward. You pick kind of the drivers that you want for the software and it sucks it in and then you just connect it with whatever databases you'd like on the back end. And so we go through the process and we talk about our experience and we talk about and you get through and they're settled on the PLCs and they're settled on ignition and they tell us the issues. And it was a little screwy because they were saying that some somewhere about 30 to 45 minutes in every shift, they have PLC issues. And I'm, I'm over here thinking to myself, if you guys are blaming the hardware, we probably have other questions that we need to have. But we, we kind of get past that and I make a mental note of we'll go back to it. And so we get into this Kepware thing and they've got some strange questions about Kepware because again, it's fairly straightforward compared to everything else. And they had questions. And and so like, we're we're a little confused. So we go to Kepware, we go, we pull up the specific AB drivers, we go, we show them the diagram. And the question they continue to ask us over and over again is yes, but how is it connected? And so like, like you go through and you like explain databases and, and, and all of that. And like they were getting fr- like you could see they were getting frustrated and they're, they're like, but how is it connected? And so like, like 35 minutes in, I'm like, do you guys mean like via Ethernet cable from the PLC into into your systems? And they're like, oh, Yes, that's so easy. And uh, the, the Ethernet cable was, was the solution to uh, to the Kepware problem. <laughs> that's so simple. <laughs> and it was. And I mean, like, yeah. we were deep. We were, like, elbows deep. We had pulled up every single Kepware, you know, schematic they had and gone through it again and again. Because we were told they had, like, very specific technical questions as to how it interfaces, right? And so we're like... And I'm like, do you guys mean an Ethernet cable? And they're like, oh, okay, we can do that. And then then we just kind of move forward. We didn't end up doing the job with them, which for a variety of reasons, again, including them blaming, you know, the PLCs 30 to 45 minutes in every shift, the the PLCs have hardware issues. Um, It was just not a good fit with, uh, it was just not a good fit at that time. But I will never forget that the answer to the Kepware question was, oh, yes, uh, you just connect it via Ethernet, and you know it works, and that that solved uh, that solved every problem. Wow, that's wild. Well, you know, and, and, and Vlad will attest to it. Sometimes it's just as simple as a, a single wire, um, or or a particular Ethernet cable not making. Yep. Yeah, and I mean it. It depends again. Like I always say, like it depends on the customer, but uh, a lot of them are not as tech savvy as you would imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just sometimes like people are just scared of uh, different technologies, you know, that they're not used to. And so like, I've been flown out to sites to just put together a rack of, of it's a uh, control logics with a power supply and a PLC, right? Like literally just that for uh, as a data concentrator. 
and then they would mount it in their own panel. So all they needed was someone who could insert the power supply into the rack, insert the PLC into the rack as well. And they, they were just like, no, we're not going to touch this. We have no knowledge, no training, no this. And so, okay, I'll fly out and do it for you guys. Well, I love customers like that. They put their trust in our, in our hands. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, of course, I'm sure there's somebody there that was competent enough to do it, of course. But, you know, they put their trust in our hands. That's why we're the experts, so to speak. And we're out there to solve their problems. So, yeah, absolutely, man. I, I, I've, I mean, I've been to certain plate like today. I, I went to a customer and um, Vlad, you may have worked with this before, but I, for the first time, I used data store plus and the panel view plus. Um, mm-hmm. to uh, export data to a CSV file on a, on a thumb drive um, yep. from the panel view. So that was a really simple solution so that they could get tank levels every hour on the hour for, you know, a seven day, you know, block. And every seven days it spits out a new CSV file. And, uh, you know, uh, they wanted a couple of trends on their HMI. And that's, that's really all we did. It's really, really pretty simple, but it solves their problem. And it's, it was very, for us, very simplistic. For them, very complicated. Yeah, and I, I hope that you can like implement some kind of a, an online solution, right? Like you can send that data to directly uh, into Excel with uh, RS links like OPC UA, or you can probably put in like, as you've mentioned, like Ignition, I would pull that automatically and kind of generate those reports. I mean, I've seen that implemented in many different ways. I've seen a VM that runs that same application, but it's a distributed a factory talk view SC application. And they would pull like the same like CSV file. And uh, like it would cause them all sorts of trouble because I mean, uh, a standalone PC can have multiple issues as you know, from especially I guess, like I don't wanna throw IT under the bus, but you know, there's all kinds of updates that come in and then like it loses the IP address or it gets like a firewall update and then it's no longer connected to the plant floor. and so anyways, like that's just the whole other uh, other discussion. But the point is, I think like there's there's good like data solutions where you can pull that in um, and not have to, I guess, like use a, a thumb drive, even though like it is a solution for many, uh, many mm. facilities sure. still. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think about Kepware that I noticed I haven't had the pleasure of dealing with, they do have an MQTT plugin um, so that you can send data straight from Kepware uh, to the cloud. Um, that would be a great solution for something like that. And I think in their particular um, situation, as simple and as, as, you know, I guess you could say dumbed down and it's not super intelligent, it's not going to the cloud. I would love for that data to be in the cloud for them to access anywhere. At the same time, I also under the, understand their, their want for privacy and for security and also just for yep. simplicity. Sometimes just keep it simple <laughs> unless no, they sure. want unless they want to make it complicated because I'll do it. I'll make it as complicated as they'd like and as cool as they would like. Trust me, I like all that stuff. But at the same time, if they're like, hey, man, just get it on a thumb drive for me. Done and done. We have a question that ties into this topic. So Aldo asks, what do you guys think about the recent ransomware attacks against industrial facilities? And what are good practices to defend against them? What are your thoughts, Preston? Oh my gosh. Well, there is a gentleman by the name of Josh on my LinkedIn account uh, from Trace Route uh, LLC who could probably better answer this because I'm not a cybersecurity analyst um, and I have done work in IT. Um, what I could say, and this is just purely based on my experience, I don't think that every piece of equipment on your plant floor should be connected just because it can be connected. That's probably the first thing. Um, I, I, again, I want everything to be connected if it were me. Um, but if you don't have the proper cybersecurity apparatus in place to take care of those kinds of threats, you should not willy-nilly connect your equipment to the plant uh, mm-hmm. network uh, and, and put that out into the world. I know some plants where if you just uh, type in their static IP address and a port number, you can have access to HMIs very easily. Yep. Um, you know, we implemented a remote solution for a customer where they simply wanted to view their HMI and control it from a remote site. Um, so we did utilize the integrated uh, VNC service within the HMI. However, we utilized their uh, corporate-wide VPN service in order to give VPN access from a laptop to the network to then use a VNC client. 
me, I, again, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but to me, that was somewhat acceptable with the understanding that their VPN client uh, and VPN uh, server was super secure. Um, yeah. You know, a VPN is a good way into networks. Um, so, but yeah, I would say unless there's a great amount of hardware and software in place that was properly configured um, by like some, you know, by somebody like TraceRoute or someone of that nature who that's what they do, um, beware. You know, I would be very weary of putting equipment on a plant network that's not protected. Yeah, I agree with uh, all of the points that you've made. I think it's it's important to start with the basics, right? Like I think the networks that I've seen at least have been uh, not always, let's say, optimally designed. And that's where you run into the situations where like, let's say your HMI has internet access and your operators can watch YouTube on the HMI at the line level. And there's very, I feel like basic uh you know, best practices outlined even by the OEMs, right? Like Alan Bradley has a white paper on how to properly implement some of these networks. And so you should be aware that there should be like optimal entry points into your network, right? If an OEM comes in with a new machine and they've got a wireless device that's going to connect to your guest network and allow them like full access of that machine while that machine is on the plant network, well, there's going to be some questions that need to be answered, right? If you're allowing something like that, because again, uh, like I'm also not a cybersecurity expert, but I can tell you that that would be very easy access to anyone to come in and maliciously attack at least that machine, if not the entire plant, right? Like that's just a, yeah. a backdoor access, if you want to call it that. But no, I, I think like best practices, like start from the, the, the bottom up, right? Like you need to have some fairly fundamental networking structure. You need to have some good practices when it comes to your firewalls. And then again, like who do you allow connecting to your site? Correct. And, you know, I think that um, I'm not entirely sure who the um, people were in these attacks, but I will say this much, you know, if information can be leaked from the internal uh, documentation of your corporation, for, for instance, your static IP, anyone with basic IT knowledge can gain access to a lot of that stuff. It really doesn't take a whole lot to get in there. Um, if, if, for example, let's say you have your modem with a static IP address at your apartment, okay, and it goes straight to a wireless router into your devices. If you don't have any default firewall software on your endpoints, like your laptops and cell phones and PCs, um, just imagine that scenario. If you have any ports forwarded or opened on that router, you're open to uh, a, poten a potential intrusion. And anyone with very basic knowledge of the internal uh, IT operations of your company, and let's, let's say, that, I mean, let's be honest, there are bad actors out there that uh, you know, are let go or they leave or whatever. And uh, that's a potential security risk as well. So I think that um, just playing it safe and putting the proper stuff in place and talking to the correct experts is very important because you know, this is what the last 30, 60 days, we've had two major ransomware attacks on uh, colonial pipeline. And now uh, what was it? A meat, uh, meat packaging company or meat uh, processing company. Yes. So that's uh, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, they're starting to uh, attack uh, major supply lines of our, our economy. It's a big deal. Yeah. I'm curious, I guess I haven't uh, like read too much into it, but if they release the actual details, right. Because I think it's one thing to, kind of claim oh like we had a ransomware attack but what exactly happened like what exactly was the impact how exactly did they you know penetrate the system so to speak like i i haven't seen like the details and what could have prevented it you know what i mean is it because they had a very poor like firewall policy is it because somebody gave their their password and then somebody um you know just essentially sold their password on the on the whatever market um i just i don't know the details uh, to be able to say, I think, with uh, conviction, what could have been uh, like the preventative steps. And again, I think, um, again, based on my understanding of uh, some of these attacks, a lot of them are kept in secrecy, right? Because you don't want to potentially reveal to the entire market. And like, we know of two attacks that happened recently, but I'm sure there's a lot more that happened, you know, behind the scenes. And I'm sure that there's, again, analysts and cybersecurity professionals like monitoring those threats, those attacks, like what succeeded, what failed from 
like basic to very advanced um, like attacks on their facilities. But I think, I guess like my opinion on the entire situation is that it's only going to continue to increase to, uh, to require us to have these professionals in place. Right. Because I think, um, you know, even judging by the hardware that is being deployed, um, pretty much everything, like you said, does connect to, e- to Ethernet and is able to communicate over like one protocol or the other. We're trying to get a lot more data. Everybody wants to, you know, see their um, their small sensor, their procs, like every time it comes on and off, or like every button that's being pressed. And that has to go somewhere. If you're really choosing to, you know, put an on-premises server, maybe like that's the right decision for one company. But I think more and more it's going to be going into the cloud and so that for sure opens up the potential to uh, different attacks. And it's just a, a need to mitigate against that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, well, you know, there's something you, you just kind of jogged my mind about this, you know, uh, Ewans and products like that are really great to give companies yep. like ours access to support our equipment because it kind of bypasses a lot of the existing IT infrastructure. So we get directly to our equipment and that's amazing for us because sometimes working with IT departments of very large corporations can be quite cumbersome, take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really just, we just need to get in there and support the equipment remotely. Yeah. Um, now, the Ewans and products like Ewans, like the uh, Phoenix Contact MGuard, these are solid products. Um, however, if you thought that uh, industrial clients were nervous about those products before, I could assume that they're probably going to be much more nervous going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know even, even before these, you know, very recent public uh, attacks, a lot of my clientele are like, hey, we're not putting that in our machine. We don't want it in there because yeah. it is a risk. And, you know, to what degree, it really, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's their perception of risk. Yeah. And uh, so that, I think that plays a big part of it. And I hope that, you know, I um, hope that doesn't go too far because I'd like to keep putting in guards and E-wands and machines to support them. Um, but, you know, we'll just have to see how that goes. Because I, I know working with a few of the IT departments of my customers hasn't been the worst experience in the world. Um, it just, it takes more time. No, absolutely. I, I think you hit it right on the on the head. I think it's about perceived risk versus, you know, ultimately the customer, I think, needs to have a plan in place on how to support that type of equipment. And if you set it up again, like on in the right way on the network, they can very easily give you access to that specific machine or, you know, like area of the network with uh, like a limited access or like completely no access to anything else on the plant, right? Like depending on how they do it. Um, and that shouldn't be too complicated with your firewall settings and your basic uh, level two and level three routing. So um, like, again, I, I know that IT and you, I guess like operational management is reluctant on doing that, but I just think if they learned a lot, m- like a bit more about those technologies and how to mitigate against it, uh, they, there wouldn't be as many issues. So no, I believe that. I believe that. Uh, I was going to jump in. I, I just have a couple of uh, thoughts on, on the topic. Um, actually, I have many thoughts on the topic, but I will try to truncate it because we have already hit the hour mark, Vlad. And Preston, I don't know how often you listen to us around the hour mark. We're really in depth into this conversation. And I'm like, Vlad, we should try to be like mildly respective of everyone's time. But to to attempt to be mildly respective of everyone's time. So like the, these attacks, if you will, these ransomwares aren't anything new. Um, I, I know of these that have been happening for at least the last four or five years. It's just that we've had a few very public ones uh mm-hmm. come out that has uh, affected you know people's ability to eat chicken or, or people's ability to easily put gas in their car or or their perceived ability to do any of these things and so i think that that's why it's become you know a hotter and hotter uh topic and, and issue uh so that is first i would say Second, most, if not all of the attacks that I have seen have come in on the IT side and they're, mm-hmm. they're generally phishing attacks and someone will click a link. And so that, that is much more awareness of let's not click links. If someone says, hey, please, why, you know, hey, this is Dave. I'm your boss. I am emailing you because I'm in a meeting. Don't call or text me. I just need you to send me $500 of Amazon gift cards. And like, th- these are legitimate things. Like we, we, j- we have to be cognizant of it. And so we need to 
better understand what that looks like. And so most of them, and I believe it's come out publicly that the colonial pipeline attack was that, and they shut down the physical pipeline. They shut down the OT side because um, they didn't know how far it went and they shut it down because they didn't want it to, to jump. I, I, I believe that those networks were fairly well segmented. It, it's the OT goes down because of IT uh, yeah, because of, of IT issues on that side. And then uh, specifically like connecting things. So I, I, I find that the most vulnerability is things that are connected to the internet that we don't necessarily know are connected to the internet. So, so Vlad's comment about HMIs that are connected to the internet so that we can watch YouTube. I, I mean, that is a, that's a miss. And whoever set that up and allowed, you know, Chrome on an HMI or, or a YouTube app on an Android tablet, like we made some mistakes and we are not understanding what the ramifications of those mistakes make. You know, as soon as we look at pushing anything to the cloud, it, uh, you know, on one side, you have the theoretical error gap, right? Of I'm not connecting anything on my OT network to the internet. Um, in my experience, I've seen one company that's actually air gapped. I, I've heard like 5% of companies are actually air gapped. So, so that I, I almost can like just take off the table. It's not realistic for most people, uh, you know, without, without paying someone generally hundreds of thousands of dollars to go through and do a cybersecurity audit to see what is connected to the internet versus what is not. And the audit is only as useful as the moment they leave the office because at that point you can simply dual home a computer. And now I've opened my entire OT side up. I think it, it's much more the, we have to be cognizant of what we're using, of what's connected to the internet, of who's plugging ethernet cables into what, because they want to play Madden on their PS5 on, you know, third shift on Saturday, because it's boring. Um, so it's all of those things that open ourselves up to issues. There are certainly a lot of folks, including Josh, as you had mentioned, Preston, who are doing great jobs um, out in the market. I think it's very much an awareness. And I think it's a a desire or ability to pay up front to mitigate those risks. And so if you talk to ICS cybersecurity professionals, they, they talk a lot about understanding what your risks are and deciding how you're going to go about it. And, and like, there's no way that anyone can realistically mitigate every risk. So like, it seems like every day there's ICS certs that come out talking about, you know, Alan Bradley or Siemens or everyone's PLCs who have issues and some patches we may or may not realistically be able to push because we could push a patch, but then the rest of the system doesn't work. So you're mitigating some risks and you're assuming some of the risks. And in my opinion, people need to just have a better understanding of what that looks like. And th there should be no surprises. Um, uh, there are many corporations who don't do that, who don't have those conversations. As you guys had, had mentioned, uh, you know, there are many customers that you can go pop in an IP address and go look at their HMIs and go play around with their HMIs. Not that anyone here would ever do that, but the fact that they're just open and there's not even any login or the login is, you know, admin and password and you can go in and do it. Like all of these things are exceptionally low hanging fruit that we need, we as, you know, OT professionals need to be having these conversations and as to if we're fixing them or as to if we're bringing in the actual professionals to go ahead and fix them, it becomes our responsibility. Long past are the days of, you know, security by obscurity. And I actually wrote a very long blog post uh, talking about that. I think last year are long, long ago are the days where we say, hey, you're secure online because this is a, you know, seemingly randomized IP address and no one's ever going to be able to guess that IP address. So you're safe. Like we're well past those days and uh, we're, we are well past those days and times. And now I'm going to pause and take a breath and, and get off of my soapbox and end my rant. And I uh, let you guys continue with, with your thoughts on the topic. <laughs> that was awesome, Dave. Awesome. Well, I, I mean, I have many thoughts, but I guess my initial thought is like on the admin password thing, I think like most of the Stratix switches that I've encountered in the field have the default username and password still, you know, set yep. on the device just because, again, like to bring back uh, our original discussion on the drawings, 
just nobody like it, it's a cost right to have somebody actually go through and like set them up properly and it's not something that is perceived as like added value up front and only if it does fail it becomes an issue right so it's like a we save some money up front by not doing all these things and nobody's going to maintain that system because like once again i think there's a, a shift slightly between um you know, the, the old age of like PLC and HMI programmer to now you need to understand networks uh, a little bit better, at least at the, at the very, uh, at the very core. And so there's just like no person that's going to take on those responsibility at the plant level. And it just gets ignored until it becomes a problem. And as they've said, like, again, someone with a, a very simple, I think IP stiffer can recognize those vulnerabilities and be able to, again, if the switches are wide open, you can change like very basic settings and cause, you know, just issues. I'm not even talking about viruses and Trojans that you could introduce, but just, you know, cause problems at a very, I feel like basic level. Just reconfigure a couple of ports and then, you know, that's like three days worth of downtime trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. I, I am. I, I do appreciate many companies within the last maybe three years starting to come out with the first thing you have to do is set credentials and the, the, the normal credentials credentials aren't admin and password. And uh, Vlad, I, I think that the Groove Epic from Opto 22 up above your head, um, it was, I think they were doing that about three years ago. So you get it, uh, you go to set it up. And the first thing you have to do is you have to set up, you know, global credentials, if you will. And you could in theory set it up as admin or password, but then you have to make like that, that is a, we're giving you the opportunity to set anything other than this. And then we store it somewhere and then we have it so that it's not so that you cannot walk into any facility and just admin password your way through everything. Right. Gentlemen, I think we're way overdue our ending. Dave, any last questions, comments? Uh, I, I like it. So, uh, Preston, uh, one more time for anyone who missed it in the beginning. Do you want to uh, tell everyone just again what the Change Life giveaway is this time? And we have dropped links, uh, especially for everyone on LinkedIn. I don't know if we've got it on YouTube yet, but for everyone to go check out what, uh, what you're doing. If you want to just summarize it one more time and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Yeah. So this change of life giveaways to give somebody a leg up and an opportunity to learn motion control as it relates to uh, controls programming. And uh, in particular, we are giving away the uh, Festo CMM MT servo kit. It's got a drive and a servo in there. If you want to see more in-depth videos, you can go check out Solace PLC. They've done a, a tutorial on that so far. Uh, a great one at that. Um, and of course, uh, to enter, you're going to go to uh, the link posted, um, and it is on the envisions.io website as well. Beautiful. Thank you, Preston. Awesome. Let's uh, wrap it up. Good. Perfect. Yes. All right. So thank you, everyone, for watching. Really appreciate it. Thank you again, Preston, for coming to talk to us for a second time. I'm sure it won't be the last. Uh, really awesome to follow your journey and some of the projects that you're working on. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you guys next Wednesday.